Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Hello again from Legal Talk Network. This is Attorney Alan Pierce on the Workers' Comp Matters podcast. And once again, we have a delightful guest, a longtime friend and colleague of ours, Kathy Serbeck from Serbeck Law in Philadelphia. Kathy is a workers' comp attorney. She handles and has handled state workers' compensation claims in the Pennsylvania area, and she is focusing her practice primarily on work injuries that are covered under the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act and the Defense Base Act. The reason I have her on as our guest today is that she is the incoming president of the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, otherwise known as Willing. It is a claimant, lawyer-only organization. We've had other guests and other past presidents of Willig to discuss Willig and really what are the current issues facing the workers' compensation community as we move out of the, what I guess we could call the uh, beginning of the post-COVID area. Kathy is, as I mentioned, an attorney. She is a graduate of Temple Law School. She's been practicing uh, workers' comp and longshore work for many de- couple of decades at least. Anyway, Kathy, welcome to this edition of uh, Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan, for having me, as well as Judd. I uh, understand Judd can't join us today, but I'm looking forward to our conversation. Judd's actually handling a case in front of a judge. We have a virtual proceeding at 1230, so he is uh, off doing that. And so it's just me solo with you today, which is always a pleasure. Kathy, I mentioned Willig. Uh, It's an organization that I've been a member of for about uh, 20 or so years. I also had the privilege of serving as president, the role that you will be assuming when you are sworn in in Honolulu, Hawaii at the beginning of October of 2023, which I know will be a wonderful event for you and your family as you uh, grew up and were educated in our 50th state of Hawaii. So give us just a quick overview of, of Willig, your, Willig's mission and your, your role as, as president. Yes. Well, I, first off, I want to say that I have some big shoes to fill following uh, many great presidents of Willig, especially Alan Pierce here. And just for some educational background, Willig was founded in 1995 by 13 individuals of whom one was, an, one was a female, Esther Weissman, for whom we have an award that we named after her. It, it is, as Alan said, a group of claimants attorneys. We're a national organization of about 1,100 attorneys. Uh, it grew from 13 founding members to now an organization of over 1,100 attorneys, and we represent attorneys in all 50 states. In addition to representing in addition to the state workers' comp practitioners, we also have practitioners in the federal arena. As Alan mentioned, I do longshore work. There is Black Lung, there's FICA. There's a lot of different workers' comp groups out there that are beyond just state workers' comp. We are dedicated to representing the interests of millions of workers and their families who are affected by work injuries. We provide education. We provide communication, we provide research and information gathering, not only to our members, but to other uh, nonprofit entities in the work injury area that, you know, are programs out there that help make the workers' comp programs better for everybody involved. 
Yeah, and as we both know, aside from the various federal and state jurisdictions, we have 50 states. Each state is basically similar, but but has meaningful differences. And one of the benefits I have found from a national organization of workers, lawyers who practice in an individual state is that Willig uh, serves as, I would say, an early warning system for changes that uh, one of our past presidents used to refer to as coming to a theater near you. I mean, something may happen for example, in Texas or Oklahoma, as happened maybe 10 years ago with the opt-out movement, and it can spread uh, across the country. So one of the things that Willig does is that we follow changes that occur in one state that may impact others. So you're coming in as president. What are the issues that you think you will be tackling, the, the pressing issues that our clients and our colleagues face and also that employers and insurance companies may face as, you know, we are now going into 2023, 2024. We are almost a quarter century now into the 21st century. So what are, what are the issues that you are going to be focusing on? And Alan, you know, we have just survived, I think is the word. I hope for our sake and our children, a once in a lifetime pandemic that we're still recovering from. And the pandemic has had many implications across not just our daily life, but our work life. And one of the things I see is that the the change in the pandemic, you know, early on in the pandemic, we were closed for a while, shut down from going around anywhere. But there were a segment of us that had to go to work, healthcare workers, grocery store workers, uh, essential workers. And those workers were exposed to COVID, exposed to other things that those of us who work in the office environment did not have to get exposed to. I see one of the things that we're facing is changes in the work environment, a hybrid work situation. How does that affect people who are working hybrid? How are they classified as employees and workers now in light of um, the changes that are coming forth? Not only has our work environment changed, but how are claims being administered? A lot of the claims examiners, I think, are working out of their homes now. How does that affect the processing of claims? And moving forward, how are individual states processing these claims? Are they being done remotely? Are they being done in person? Is there a hybrid? And how and what benefits or drawbacks is that to our workers, our clients, as well as the employers. You made a lot of good points there. In fact, you used a term that sort of came into vogue in the middle part of 2020, and that is essential workers. And I think one of the things we all realized and perhaps had forgotten, all workers are essential, no matter what the job that you do. Uh, so when you, you isolated some of these changes that are taking place, I know we've done a show or two on this in the past, and one of them when you talk about remote work, is the workers' comp implications for somebody who works out of their home as opposed to going into an office setting or a building or, you know, a, a, a traditional workplace? And what happens when there are injuries in the remote workplace? And, and, and so give us an idea of what some of the cases or some of the fact situations have, have come up that different jurisdictions are grappling with. Well, for example, if you're, you know, if you're working from home, 100%, then your workplace is your home. So what if you go to the bathroom and you trip and fall? Or if during the course of your day, you run down, you throw some laundry in the basement and you trip on the stairs, is that considered 
part of the course and scope of your day? Does it arise out of your, your work? Or is that a deviation for personal comfort? Or alternatively, if you have a hybrid situation where you're in the office for a couple of days a week and you're home for a couple of days a week, are you now beyond a stationary worker, but you're part of the, you know, for lack of a better term, a traveling employee who has whose expansion of arising in the course of your work has expanded, does that include your commute now when you're going to the office? Nowadays, with how we're connected almost 24-7, right? Whether we like it or not, we're constantly connected to our clients. We're constantly connected to the other side. We're talking to somebody. And if on our commute into the office, we're having a conversation with our client about something and we get into our car accident, not because that we're on the phone, but because somebody rear-ended us, does that is that covered now? Yeah, those are those are fascinating fact questions, and I, I suspect as cases start to come in, these cases will be adjudicated, and sometimes with consistent results across all jurisdictions. Because a lot of our listeners may or may not know, there are general sort of precepts or doctrines in workers' comp, and these doctrines were created when the work life was basically your home and your place of work. So that, for example, the going and coming rule basically says if you are going or coming from work, you're not covered. You're not within the scope of your employment. But, you know, when that rule was developed, we didn't have uh, cell phones in our cars. So if we are, as you mentioned, talking business and get rear-ended, yes, we're commuting to work or commuting home from work, but we're still performing work activities. Same thing at home. If, you know, if you're in the workplace and you go to the ladies' room, and you slip on some water or, or whatever, you're covered generally under the personal comfort doctrine. How does that extend to the home? We won't know uh, any consistent rules until there is a body of law that, that creeps up jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But these are the things that we have to think about and talk about because these are uh, things that are occurring and have occurred since our um, work has changed. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be back and talk about some of the other pressing issues of 2023 into 2024. So we'll be right back with Kathy Serbeck. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Mara's Case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's Case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. Okay, we are back with Kathy Serbeck. Kathy, aside from, you know, the hybrid situation, the work-at-home situation, what are the other changes that you see coming or have actually started to happen post the COVID era? Yeah. For example, in Pennsylvania, we used to attend all hearings in person, whether they were pretrials or evidentiary hearings. We used to attend all of our hearings in person. Since COVID, a hybrid has come into place now. And 
I believe, and I don't do a lot of state workers' comp now, but I believe that the pre-trial hearings are now are now handled via Zoom or Microsoft Teams, and having in-person hearings for evidentiary records development. Some judges are still having everything rem- remotely. I have some concerns about that. I prefer in-person hearings myself. I think you can get a lot more done when you're in person. I don't know how how it is in other jurisdictions, but when we used to wait around for our hearing, we used to talk to other councils. We used to be able to address cases and get things done. We don't have that anymore when we're not in person. One of the other things I've noticed is that, you know, the judges or hearing officers, whatever they're called, they are usually given by the appellate authorities or appellate bodies wide discretion in terms of weighing the evidence, the credibility of witnesses, the credibility of people testifying. And the more that is done on a video platform where you are basically looking at, at pixels and squares on a screen as opposed to the, the other perhaps unspoken messages by looking at somebody in person, that could be to the detriment of our clients. It could be the, for the benefit of our clients. There's some clients we may not want the judge to see in person. But, um, you know, I think that workers' comp is such a special area of the law that the uh, financial obligations of, of employers and insurers and the financial wherewithal of injured workers, I think everybody deserves to be in person where it is feasible. And it was feasible before COVID. Now we've experienced the the convenience and lack of parking and commuting into an agency, but at what expense? So what, what, how is Willie handling or looking at this in terms of access to justice? I think that we, uh, we are doing a poll with our members to see what their states are doing, what is effective for them. Some claimants attorneys prefer to be remote because I think they find it more efficient you know, when you're sitting in your office and you don't have, like you said, Alan, you don't have to commute, you don't have to pay for parking. But I I have a problem with it. And I think that there might be an equal protection argument because some in some rural areas, you might not have very good internet connection, right? So you might be, not be able to get on. Some injured workers might not have access to the best technology. So they're not going to be able to be seen on a camera and if you're going to have your client come into your office, what's the difference between that versus just going down wherever your hearing office might be? So I think on the one hand, those states that were able to pivot and move to a remote platform kept the system moving along, right? During Absolutely. During like the throes of COVID. But now that we're out of the throes of it, is this the best practice forward for all of these stakeholders? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows the answer to it. We're all struggling. There are certainly compelling reasons to use technology efficiently. The goal of technology is efficiency and and getting things done in a more economical, timely uh, fashion, which allows us time to do other things. But at the same time, we have to be mindful of what we're giving up for the sake of this type of expediency and economic benefits. So this is an ongoing issue. And, and I know it's it's not one where there is an easy answer. And each state, even Massachusetts, we kept going through the pandemic. I give our agency a lot of credit uh, for doing that. We didn't miss a beat except maybe for the first, you know, three or four weeks of total lockdown, but uh, they were up and running. And, and, and from when I've spoken to colleagues, our Willie colleagues and others around the country, most other states have done the same. 
aside from um, those issues, uh, how has this, whether it's just the changing times or the COVID era, how has this affected medical treatment, access to treatment in the first quarter of the 21st century here in the United States? What do you see as having happened and what's on the horizon medically for our clients? Well, pre-pandemic, I observed a chipping away at medical access. That is the one area where I think uh, employers and insurance companies have tried to exert their authority and have more and more control over medical care. In Pennsylvania, for example, the employer insurance companies have control over an injured worker's care for the first 90 days. It can dictate where you go. They can dictate what kind of care you get. If you don't follow their instructions, they might not pay for the care. And during those first 90 days, depending on the situation, they'll pay you temporarily. And then before the expiration of 90 days, they'll cut you off and, you know, you have to prove your case. With the, as we know, with the pandemic and with the um, pressures that our healthcare system endured during the pandemic, I think it's harder and harder to get to see a doctor. I think some providers have pulled away from treating injured workers because of reimbursement rates or paperwork or whatever it is. And I think there's going to be a change in the future. I also see, again, some of the medical treatment moving into a remote situation where you have telehealth. And on the one hand, telehealth gives access, easier access, so you don't have to wait you know, weeks or months to get in to see, see somebody. But on the other hand, how effective is telehealth to treating our injured workers? I've also seen, and of course, during the pandemic, I could understand it. Insurers obviously have the right to have independent medical evaluations on a particular case. And I've seen some of those done remotely. Um, I guess there is a way for a doctor to maybe look at on a screen range of motion and things like that, but without the ability to have passive or active range of motion tests and other diagnostic tests, it is limited. So yes, it's a two-edged sword here. Technology allows us to be seen and be heard, but we can't be touched. Yeah. And we, we can't be really examined. And that does pose some problems. As far as insurers or employers having control, I know from having talked to people on that side and, and people who've listened to this show know that, you know, I, although I come from a background of representing insurers. Uh, my practice is primarily claimant-oriented, but, you know, some employers and some insurers will tell you, well, we are the payers of these benefits and we want control over the medical care because we see sometimes our injured workers, our injured employees not getting good medical care. Are they going to sort of the mill, the factory docks that, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, find everybody disabled? So, you know, these are things we were wrestling with before the pandemic, and now it's perhaps getting a little more complicated with these other issues, such as medical reimbursement and oh, um, practice guidelines and treatment guidelines and limits on, on things like that. That could be a whole couple of shows that we could do. Well, and before we move from that, Alan, I want to just point out that in the federal arena, there, there is uh, legislation to try to have nurse practitioners and physician assistants qualified as treaters and that you don't have to be an MD for that. And I think if that is able to be passed, that would be a huge help for the federal system and then hopefully a trickle-down effect to the states because physician assistants and nurse practitioners are part of our 
new world. Not only part of the new world, that they probably see 90% of our people 90% of the time. You very, uh, not, not quite as often do you actually see the MD doc. And then we have evidentiary issues in terms of their ability to give expert testimony vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a, a licensed physician, et cetera. So yeah, these are all evolving questions and issues. Let's take another quick break and then we'll continue our discussion with Kathy Serbeck. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went... To a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Okay, we are back. One other thing I want to touch upon very briefly, there are two other issues that I know Willig has always been on the forefront. I think it'd be a good idea to just touch on them briefly before we conclude. One is the so-called Medicare set-aside process where when you lump sum settle or redeem liability on a workers' comp claim where the medical benefits close, which is typical for a lot of jurisdictions, if the injured worker is a Medicare recipient or is going to become one, there is the requirement that the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, CMS, which is a branch of the Social Security Administration, must address any settlement and give its blessing and set up a a set-aside amount. And um, I know there have been a lot of difficulties working around this across the country. What is Willig's current position? Is what, he, what is Willig trying to do to make this process easier for all involved, not just the injured worker, but for the insurers and employers who have to wait for CMS approval all the time um, money is accruing? Well, I know that we are uh, part of a conversation at the legislative level to amend the, and I think it's called the MSP bill, and streamline it. Um, we've also have uh, educated our members because I don't know about you, Alan, but I certainly am not qualified to uh, administer a Medicare trust fund or anything like that, and and you know send in the reporting requirements. So you know, there's it's a two-step process. One, getting the approval for the Medicare set aside. How much is it? What is what is appropriate for our clients. And that is something that I, I know for myself, I'm not qualified to do because I, I don't know what's the projection. So we are educating our members on utilizing various companies that help us do the Medi Medicare projection. And you have to understand that typically the carriers will do their projections first and they will want to have the lowest number possible because that's your exposure. But the lowest number might not be the most appropriate number for our clients because our clients might need more than what that says. So we advise our members to get a second opinion. I mean, we get a second opinion pretty much with everything else in our lives. Why not this? Especially with med medical treatment. For some routine, and I hate to say routine, but like less onerous injuries, the set-asides, you know, 10,000, that's, that's manageable. But for some catastrophic injuries or traumatic brain injuries, those can be 
hundreds of thousands of dollars that your that our clients you know need protection on. So that's something that we we are always reminding our clients, our members to be mindful of. And also there are professional administrators out there who can help us guide our clients and make life easier for our clients. Yeah, one thing I will say is that this MSP bill that is pending in the federal government, both in the Senate and in the House, there is interest on both sides of the aisle. I don't mean the political aisle, Republicans and Democrats. I mean the aisle between injured workers and employers or insurers to get this done. So we are, I know Willig is partnering with people from the insurance community as well as the tort lawyers because it won't be long before your typical auto case or your slip and fall case, the civil cases, uh, also will be required to get Medicare set-asides upon settlement. And if you think it's burdensome, expensive, time-consuming, and a delayed process, wait till it hits you know, every area of civil liability. So one of the benefits of a national organization such as Willig or some of the defense organizations that uh, represent attorneys and claims professionals, uh, this is something we can all agree upon that the federal government needs to have some input on how to create a much better system of a, a streamlined approval process and this other things as well. There are other issues that we could talk about. Maybe we'll have you back on at the end of your year and, and uh, sort of get a uh, look back on an overview but uh, to those of you who practice in the field of workers' comp, uh, whether you represent injured workers or employers or insurers, there is value to a national organization for whatever your particular area of interest is. You can learn a lot. You can contribute a lot. And I want to thank Willig and I want to thank Kathy for taking the role of uh, incoming president. It's a lot of work. It's rewarding work. And you've got a good, deep bench and you've had some good folks uh, ahead of you that have paved the way, as I have had the benefit of that as well. So any closing words you want to have, Kathy, if anybody needs to contact you about any uh, federal workers' comp or longshore, what's the best way to reach Kathy Serbeck? You can reach me uh, by email at cserbeck at serbecklaw.com. I'm happy to talk to anyone who has any questions. I encourage those of uh, you listening to us who are not Willick members to check us out. As Alan said, there's a lot of benefits to have to being part of a national organization. You don't think that these topics or these questions or these um, hot button items might affect you, but they actually do. Let's face it, everyone's just trying to cut costs all the time. <laughs> and it's it's a constant chip away at things, whether it's you know, limiting the amount of weeks you can get, limiting your medical. For lawyers, I hate to say it, but I think there's going to be moving to try to limit fees down the, you know, down the line because the insurance companies are always saying how they want to cut costs. Now, that's a conversation for another day because I think that, you know, they're doing very well uh, as it is. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business. Right, Alan? Well, we, you know, we need a healthy employment and insurance system if, uh, in which we can operate because uh, if it is out of balance, we all know what happens when this big system of injured workers, a lot of money involved, a lot of people in between the injury and the payment of money. And when things get out of balance, corrections happen. And usually the corrections oftentimes are much worse than the original problems. So the, the overall goal, the thing that has guided my philosophy maybe in the last half of my career, is to always remember we need the balance. Yes. We don't want insurance companies to fail. We want them to make a profit. But like anything else, 
you know, what is a fair what is a fair return on investment? What is a fair amount of benefits that injured workers should receive? And it is something that is always evolving. And as long as we keep our eye on the prize and keep our eye on the ball, it's a system that has worked well for 100, relatively well for 100 plus years, and it can continue to work, but we have to work at it. So I want to thank you for all you do and for all my colleagues do on either side, the, the defense attorneys, some of my best friends and most respected colleagues are people that represent insurers. And I, I can say the same thing of my colleagues who represent injured workers. I think we're all trying to do the right thing. Thank you for having me. So for all of you who regularly listen to Workers' Comp Matters, thank you for returning and listening to us. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, please stay tuned. We try to post a show every month. Thank you for listening and go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye.